0: Hey, everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. As I'm getting closer to releasing my 50th episode, it's about time I released this episode with uh, one of my really, really good friends, Marshall Long. You've probably never heard of him, and that's okay. Marshall is one of those people that doesn't have a huge social media following. Many people have never heard of him and he's very quiet. But Marshall is an OG and he's been involved in the Bitcoin space since 2011 as an early, early, early Bitcoin miner. He really was one of those people that pioneered the concept of Bitcoin mining as an industry and not just something that people would do for fun. I recorded this episode when I first had launched this show maybe six months ago and I didn't want to release it yet until i had a larger listenership and following because it wouldn't do the show justice and so i felt that this time was the right time to release it marshall um, is one of those people that really remained true to his word even when i was in prison marshall was physically writing handwritten letters to me you know we weren't even talking about bitcoin it was just to help me keep my sanity when you have someone like that who stands by you during the good and the bad There's a debt that I feel like I owe. And so I wanted to wait to release this episode. You're going to enjoy it because unlike other mining episodes that I have released and will release, Marshall's story goes back very early. And over the years, he's kind of faded into the background. A lot of people, early Bitcoin people that got involved, very similar things happened to them. Either they got burned out or they just, uh, you know, faded into irrelevance and this is something that I fear too Uh, one of the reasons I started this show is it was a way for me to continue to be in this industry and that's something that I love to do so this is a not technically a special episode it's a special episode for me really enjoy it and I'll talk to you guys in a few minutes right after we give some love to our sponsors I'm so honored that Untold Stories is sponsored by eToro eToro is the smartest crypto trading platform and one of the largest in the world with over a trillion dollars in trading volume per year. What I really love about eToro is that the CEO has been around the Bitcoin space since 2012, so they really, really put their money where their mouths are. U.S. customers, myself included, we can trade the most popular crypto assets. In fact, almost all the ones that you want to trade with low, but transparent fees. So you actually know what you're paying for everything. That's really, really, really important. So if you're not ready to trade yet, you can practice building your portfolio with the eToro $100,000 virtual trading feature. So you can create this whole portfolio without trading with any real money to see how you'll do. And you can learn all the different ins and outs without using any real money yet. And then once you're comfortable, you can enter the market and start buying and selling crypto for real. Best of all, one of my favorite features is that you can connect with 11 million other eToro traders in the world, myself included, and we can talk trading, charts, and all things crypto. So listen, head on over to eToro.com, links are in the show notes, and build your crypto portfolio the smart way. I want to thank and give credit to the first ever sponsor of Untold Stories, Scott Offer. Scott is a Bitcoin mining consultant, and I really want you guys to check out one of his coolest apps that's free to use. It's a Bitcoin mining profitability calculator that you can check it out before you get involved in mining or if you just want to learn more about whether mining is profitable and how it works. The website is CryptoMining.Tools. That's CryptoMining.Tools. Tools. You can enter your estimated uptime and get more realistic profit projections. It includes really cool features like the impact of the Bitcoin block reward having, which is actually coming up extremely soon. Their API allows you to embed profitability calculators and other live data directly into your own website, all for free. Also, if you're wondering which miner is the most efficient or has the best chance of breaking even, you should try out their interactive hardware comparison chart. So it's a hardware comparison chart, so you can compare all different types of miners for all different coins and tokens, and it's interactive, so you can play around with it. It's by far the best tool. If you have any questions about mining or if you want to learn more about mining, it's the best tool you can check it out. As a mining consultant, Scott helps you make data-backed business decisions. He will be involved in the process if you want to buy a miner, if you want to sell a miner, if you have miners that need to get into data centers. I mean, if you follow Scott on Twitter, even if you're not in the mining industry, you learn so much. I follow him. It's super cool. You can check it out on Twitter or Telegram at Offered Scott. That's O-F-F-O-R-D-S-C-O-T-T. That's O-F-F-O-R-D-S-C-O-T-T. Again, I want to give a special thanks to Scott. You are my first sponsor when the show was just launching. Thank you so much. Untold Stories wouldn't be here without the amazing production company, Blockworks Group. A few months ago, I approached Blockworks Group and I said, Hey guys, I want to do a show, Untold Stories. Can we make it happen? And these guys are the only event and podcast production company that I trust. Really, the show is powered by them, and it wouldn't be here today without the amazing work of the BlockWorks Group team. So for access to all the premier digital asset conferences and to check out their other podcasts in their network that they produce, check them out at BlockWorksGroup.io. That's BlockWorksGroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. Our next guest is very interesting. His name is Marshall Long. Marshall's a really good friend of mine. And he's a serial entrepreneur. His background in crypto initially is from mining. And he's actually known as one of the first Bitcoin miners, being the CTO of Final Hash, a Bitcoin mining consulting company. He's also recently broken out into the esports industry, which is what I actually want to talk about, and is the CEO of Market Esports. Marshall has an expertise in P2P uh, economics, as well as breaking into new markets, mostly in Asia. So Marshall, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, buddy. There, there's a lot of topics. There's a lot of topics. And I want to talk about Asia because you lived in, um, I know you you do a lot of stuff in Asia and Malaysia, all over that, that, that region. You're also um, very big into eSports, which has been touted as one of the, the game-changing or killer apps for crypto, but it's not really being spoken about enough, so I want to talk about that. Um, but one of the first stories I always like to tell, and we always do this when we we talk in our Fireside Chats, our listeners can can hear us at the next North American Bitcoin Conference. We actually had Mo on the show, who runs that event already. And But one of the stories is that I like to tell is um, we knew each other from 2012, 2013, but we didn't really... Uh, get to know each other until one day I was sitting in prison and I got a letter from you. Now, um, that was very interesting because like most people of our generation, no one really writes letters anymore. So I didn't expect to receive a lot of letters. You know, I got a lot of magazines and everything, um, which was great. But to actually sit down, physically write a letter, get the address, get a stamp, find a mailbox, it requires like some effort. And what, so what spurned you to do that?
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so it's, it's, it's interesting, right? Cause we've known each other. We've been in, you know, those Skype groups back in the early days. Um, and then when all this stuff was popping off uh, for you in particular, right, it was uh, an interesting opportunity for me to check back in and be like, Hey man, don't, don't feel like, you know, you're all alone. I get it. Because, you know, the the early days were rough, dude. And you kind of were a martyr for those early,
0: early days for us. So um, those Skype Skype groups were very interesting. (laughs) Um, So basically, I'm going to paint the picture for our listeners. Let's go back to 2000 from 2011 to 2000. And I would say Um, 99 percent of anything that went on in crypto went on in like three different places. You had the Bitcoin talk forums, which are now 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 known as um bitcoin Talk.org, but back then it was just forum.bitcoin.org, which was start the website was that was start that was started by Satoshi, and that was like the majority of anything that was going on. Then there was IRC, but IRC isn't um isn't as welcoming to um and easy to use and it's also misses out on a much richer user interface. But most people hung out on these Skype groups. And, Marshall, we're still part of one that still exists that I think has to be the oldest Skype group. And we can't even say its name because the rules of talking about it <laughs> still apply and we'll get kicked the, out. The first
1: but, rule of that group is you don't talk about that group. Yeah, yet. you
0: can't talk about that group. And I hope you don't get kicked out now for talking about it. <laughs> but you won't say its name. But some of the really early people were part of that group. Like, like Jared, we all used to make too. fun. Yeah, like uh, Vitalik. There? Vitalik mm-hmm. was not good. We make fun mm-hmm. of Vitalik. You know, who's this kid? Um, and those were the groups. You know, in order to be in that group, and one of the best thing that group has was its rule that you had to be referred to. You have to be That's referred right. by four or four or five other people. Yeah. And so we'll it's similar to
1: start- kind of like the round table now, right? If you want to, if you want to get in, people can't have to talk like about the round table either. Up.
0: Oh, you could say no. the word roundtable. <laughs> All the listeners are probably like, what is the oh, secret what is stuff this going so much on? A lot of
1: stuff going on, guys.
0: <laughs> but those Skype groups were so much fun. And those were like our family. And that's where we talked about. Um, and there were some crazy heated arguments. I remember like the first crazy arguments of proof of stake versus proof of work Go were going on during those in those Skype 100%. groups. A
1: hundred percent. Yep. I still remember those. Those are... Uh... From a bygone era for sure. And now, you know, in my opinion, Bitcoin Talk's just like a dirty cesspool of noise and doesn't really accomplish much. But now those I don't even the- log into Bitcoin talk anymore. <laughs> it's becoming quickly a waste of time for
0: sure. Well, it used to be that you can do business on Bitcoin Talk and yeah, like, group buys. You remember all those yeah. crazy group buys for Asics back in the early days, man. Group those buys were great. for graphics cards for yeah. Asics, for all physical bitcoins, for mm-hmm. all this stuff. But here you are trusting random people around the world to buy shit. So you're sending one person is the escrow, and all you all of us are sending thousands of dollars to this one person. And then this other person would, and this one person would send out, you know, do the group buy, and then we'd all get our shit. But the funny thing is that we never even had a doubt in our mind that we'd get scammed. Like yeah, it was ever. like a, we're all in crypto. Mm-hmm. We have we're bigger a bunch fish of to fry. We're, yeah, we're here here not going to like, screw each other. Cool
1: stuff. And, uh, yeah, so that's one thing that I will say that's a huge stark difference from now and then. Now the big popular thing is, Oh, don't trust verify code is law, blah, blah, blah. In my opinion, I'm, you know, I'm a pretty simple minded guy. I'm from Texas. I still like to trust people. And, It makes things very easy to operate, and uh, I still exercise that kind of mentality and all the business stuff I do, and that's one thing that I feel like we have lost a lot. You know, you could send – perfect example, when uh, Cassatius was running his coins, right? You didn't know if you were going to get anything shipped. You would send him 1.1 Bitcoin. He would mail you a physical Bitcoin. That's it. And it wasn't like this whole, well, are you verified? Do, Do people know you? And now I think that's just like maybe a symptom of how uh, big and widespread the, the industry has become. But that, that is for sure one big difference.
0: That's a very interesting point. And, and I, I'm going to have Mike Caldwell on the show, Casatius, in a few weeks. But that's a very interesting point because nowadays with hardware wallets and physical you know, crypto products, it's all about two of three and... You know, creating your seed on your own, and like you said, don't trust verify. And I want to I want to talk about that in a second. But you know, when Mike Caldwell was doing his physical bitcoins, he was literally printing the private key on for each coin, and he printed hundreds of thousands of bitcoin worth of coins that I still have some, and I still till today have to trust that Mike didn't retain copies of the private keys. That's right,
1: and and there's there is. A- Somewhat until he got smacked by, I think it was SEC, right? It was, Um, yeah, one of the agencies. Yeah, one of the three or four letter agencies. Now there's, um, I'm not sure if you've heard of crypto art, but that's the same kind of thing. That's started by a guy from Texas
0: named Troy. Oh, yeah, he has great, but he sells his stuff for like millions of dollars. Yeah,
1: so it's expensive stuff, but on some of the early pieces, he was putting paper wallets like impregnated into the art. And I sat down with him one time and I was like, all right, Troy, tell me how you're doing this securely. Because I wasn't worried, I was never worried about Troy retaining copies and then later running some kind of huge exit scam. I was only worried about somehow that those keys that he printed were able to be scraped off that laptop from some kind of exploiter vulnerability. So that's been my mindset for so long, but
0: uh, I think most people aren't like that. So how does he how does he protect? Because I have I have two of his piece, I have a few of his pieces I have like three of his pieces in my office.
1: Mm-hmm. So the I way have the, he the explained the on table
0: one. Oh yeah, but they're Sorry. empty. There's yeah, no coins on them. That's right. So
1: the way he explained it to me was, he orders a laptop before he even turns it on. He uh, opens it up. He takes out the Wi-Fi antenna, and he um and then when he starts it, he like takes out the drivers for um you know, all the NIC drivers, all the network interface stuff. So it can't get connected. And he's got, um, the paper wallet generator that Luke made and he just, it's on a USB and just shoves it in, runs command line, and then he prints it out. So, um, and then after that, he just deletes it and every so often he gets a new laptop and that's it. So that was good enough for me. Yeah. And obviously don't put I'm not putting tons right on because on you kind of have to destroy the art in order to pull it out,
0: right? Like you have to oh, take it out of the
1: frame, rip the sticker off the back. And it's like a, it's a whole process. So,
0: but it's really interesting. So, um, don't trust verify that you mentioned before. It's a very interesting quote. So, and, and like, like you, I give a lot of talks and that, that, um, quote I use in some of my talks and sometimes I have to go back and Re edit or rethink about what I said. So, a common theme that I say is you say with crypto, it's don't trust verify. So, the beauty of crypto is that, or Bitcoin, at least Bitcoin for now, because nothing else has been able to achieve the decentralization that Bitcoin has been able to achieve at this point. But um, my, my, what I say is, I say Bitcoin has removed the need to trust someone. And when you remove the need to trust someone, then not that I don't want to have to trust you because you're a great person and I do want to trust you. But if I remove the need of having to trust you, it makes business that much easier. But I have to take a step back and think about what that means because you hit a, you struck a chord with what you just said. And the wanting to trust someone is a very core, essential part of life. Um, Building those relationships is very important. And so not that Bitcoin will remove the ability, the need for trust. I should change that. I should say Bitcoin removes in in certain business type transactions, removes the ability for someone who would potentially screw you from actually being able to do it. And then because of that, you can now build a, there's no incentive to screw because there's no really ability. And therefore you can then build a trusting relationship. Does that kind of work better?
1: Yeah, I I would agree with that, you know, Um, with the caveat of there are always stupid people everywhere. And so some people fall for the craziest stuff, right? So um, I will say it's easier to get away with murder in Bitcoin, but it's really hard to initiate murder in Bitcoin. Um, Hmm. uh, And yeah, to be honest, man, the the way I kind of do stuff now is... um, it's similar, you know. I, I give people the opportunity to act shady. And that tells you a lot about a person. Um, you know, I'll I'll initiate one side of a deal where if they just wanted to run off, it's not a huge loss, but it's enough. And this is actually something Peter Todd taught me. Um, this was at Scaling Bitcoin Hong Kong. Yeah, in 2015. He did something real weird. So we we're sharing a hotel room and he left 100 bucks on... Um, in the hotel, like right out in plain view. And we were going to go out. It's like, Peter, what are you doing? It's like a hundred bucks just sitting there. Aren't you worried that the maid's going to come in and take it? And he said, no. I said, well, what do you, what, like you packed up all your other money. What are you doing? He said, so what I do is I leave a non-trivial amount of money out so that I can see the kind of people I'm surrounded by. And I said, oh, okay, cool. And I've known Peter forever, right? Um, and I said, so basically, if the if, if the maid steals your hundred bucks, you feel like you you would get a sense of ease because you know what the situation is, and it's not so aqueous. And he's like, yeah, that's exactly right. So he does that a lot. He'll leave twenty bucks or fifty bucks just like out on a counter or wherever he stays to see kind of just to get a better insight into what he's working with. But a smart
0: you know maid or whatever in a hotel wouldn't take the. 20 or 50 they, they'd realize that that is a test you think that they would outright take it like that he said he said some taken but you
1: know peter travels all over the place so some countries it's it's, it's down to a lot of ethics too and, and the culture of
0: that place I'm, I'm sure it's only happened to me once so you have so, so you peter travels a ton i mean he lives out of a suitcase you travel a ton now a little bit like like me a little bit less now i don't i love where i live so I don't like traveling as much, but I've traveled, you know, 40 something countries. I've only been robbed once. I'll tell you, I'll tell you the story. Actually two, I'll tell you two stories. And this is supposed to be untold stories of Marshall Long, <laughs> not untold stories of Charlie. But here we got, we got nothing else to do this morning. So, um, two stories. One time I was, I was actually on my honeymoon and I was staying in one of the most expensive hotels I've ever stayed in, in my life in the South of France. One of the most, literally, it was like Is it the Fairmont. No, it was it was in Cap de Ferrat. Mm-hmm. It was this very right outside Monaco. It was like a thousand dollars a night or fifteen hundred a night or something. And I did two nights because it was my honeymoon. We had a little jacuzzi on the on the roof. It was so it was a great room, you know. Mm-hmm. It was like a honeymoon action. Mm-hmm. So um, so we stayed there for two nights, and I had my briefcase with my laptop out, and the briefcase I had left just unzipped. And in the briefcase was an envelope. And I think I had like two, 3000 euros in the envelope. And, and listen, I don't know about other people, but I knew exactly how much was in there. I, I was counting it every day, you know, like, <laughs> you know, I just knew exact, I knew exactly like down to like the one euro note, how much was in there. And, and the maid was smart. And I knew, I knew they did it. I knew, or someone who was in the room did it. Cause there were a lot of people in the room, but, I was missing out of the three thousand. I was missing like 400, four hundred, four to five hundred, and the flap, the zipper was closed when I got back. And I know I left it open. And the reason, the reason I think they were able to do it was because they were able. Most people wouldn't count how much money was there. Most people would just know they have a stack. And so, if you're missing three four hundred out of three four thousand, it's not you're not going to notice that when you're looking at the stack until like a week later. And then a week later, you're never going to know. Right. What was I going to do? I couldn't say anything. Mm -hmm. Um, And a second story, which is a crazy story. I was in, I was in Morocco in 2014 and 2013. Sorry. I was in Morocco, 2013 and Morocco is a dry country except for some areas. So, you know, there's just no alcohol anywhere except in like the major cities, like in Fez or Marrakesh, in Casablanca in certain like westernized or French hotels, right? So you can't there aren't bars on the street. There's like there was like two bars in Marrakesh in the new the new part of the city. So we're in one, we were drinking, and then we were walking back to the old city, and you know, you don't want to be drunk when everyone else is sober. You don't want to have <laughs> that's right, when you, you have don't millions want of Moroccans goof. walking around. What? You don't want to be the stumbling goof, yeah. Yes, because you're very everyone can see it. So at that, so I was walking with, with my now wife and some guy stuck his hands in my pockets, um, stuck his hand in my pocket and to grab like a pickpocket. And I felt it. And I wasn't concerned about the wallet or the keys. I was more concerned about my phone. Mm-hmm. So he he literally grabbed my pocket. And what I did was is I felt it and it wasn't even like trying to stop him. It was a reflex. I grabbed my pocket too. And when I grabbed my pocket... I grabbed his hand on my pocket and I squeezed. So now his hand is stuck on my, but I didn't do that to like be some like, you know, karate chop or whatever. That was just, that was the reflex you make, you know, someone grabs your, you feel something in your pocket. Mm -hmm. You're going to grab your pocket. So I grabbed my pocket and I felt this hand and I'm like, oh my God, is that a spider? Like, what the fuck is that? And I spun around. And when I did that, it, he lost his footing and he fell. And, at that moment i turned around i'm drunk it looks like from everyone else who's around i'm in the big square i'm in the big square with like tens of thousands of people in the old city in 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 the mark central square i forget what it's called and all of a sudden you see this westernized guy western white guy all of a sudden like pushing this moroccan teenager on the ground and if you Uh, don't know this if if you uh. didn't know what had happened you're looking like i'm attacking this guy oh man so all of a sudden his whole group of people his whole group of friends started like making that like slow assembly to face me and it's like you know you know
1: shit's about to go yeah down.
0: <laughs> and courtney is like got her like pink tank top and her blonde hair sticking out like a sore thumb and so i'm fumbling on the ground trying to pick up all my stuff so as when he lost his footing out of that left pocket I lost my wallet and my keys. So I had my phone, but I lost my wallet and my keys. We were staying in a in a in a in a flat, like an apartment, a few blocks away. So my I picked up my wallet, but I couldn't find the keys on the ground. It was dark and, and I couldn't find the keys. But I was like, you know what? Forget the keys because my friend Thomas, who you know, Thomas, oh, yeah. was was in the in the uh, oh, he in was the, in the flat. So he was good. in the flat. You know hanging out with his girlfriend at the time. So I was like, all right, you know, I'll, I'll just run there and we'll knock on. So we started walking really fast and not running, but walking really fast away. I had my phone in my wallet, no keys. And the guy was uh, following us with his group of friends and we left the main square and I'm saying to myself, okay, if, if we need to, I don't have the keys to this flat. And the problem is, is, you know, what these old cities like the old city of Jerusalem and any old city, it's all these, you know, narrow winding streets Mm -hmm. that once you leave a larger square area and you enter the winding roads, they're all dead ends. That's right. So I was like saying to as we're walking fast, I'm like, shit, I need to call Tom and tell Tom to open up the door. Because I don't want to be banging on the door and he's in the shower or something. And and these guys are (laughs) coming (laughs) after me. (laughs) So I'm dialing him from my phone. And this was a problem. I had an American phone in Morocco. And I was trying to call a German phone in Morocco. So it just didn't work. The American, I was from my iPhone. I was trying to dial his German phone number. And it it just didn't, something, at some point along the way, the call was dropping. It was going straight to his German voicemail. It wasn't working. And I knew he had his phone on. So I walked. So we kept walking and I was like, shoot. I tried from Courtney's phone. It didn't work either. And so we walked into a bakery and the bakery was right at the corner of the main square and our smaller street. So we're sitting in this little cafe in his bakery. It's like very, it's lit, very bright. You know, it's a, it's a very lit bakery and it's very dark outside. And mind you, we're like got a significant buzz going on. And all these guys come right outside the main door of the bakery. And so we're trapped. And so (laughs) there, I know it's crazy. And I remember this story vividly. So they're now, some of them are sitting at a table. Some of them are standing up, just pointing at us with this like mean glare on their face. And the kid who I had pushed on the ground, I didn't push him, it just kind of happened. He was there too. And he was like just leading and he was really angry. And, um, And so I went up to the guy who owns the bakery um, or the guy behind the counter, and I said um, in my really broken Arabic, because my Arabic is so bad now that I haven't had practice, um, I offered him a twenty dollar twenty dollar bill, like uh, an American dollar bill, twenty dollar bill, which is a lot of money in Morocco. And I um and I made like a phone gesture with my with my my fingers, and I was and I pointed to to like his he had like a landline, and I was like please, and you know you could kind of understand that I'm basically asking him to use his phone. So he let me use his phone and, you know, he rips it off the, off the wall and he hands me the cordless phone and I'm dialing Tom's number and it's working. You know, it's ringing, beep, 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 you know, it's ringing, but he's not fucking answering. Uh. So I'm like, what is he doing? (laughs) So, so I'm like, we're sitting down and I'm like, all right, we're going to wait this. We are going to wait these guys out and we must have waited like 15 minutes and we're just sitting there waiting. I'm having a pastry and these guys are not leaving. And I said, worst case, I'll just wait. I'll wait all night. We'll sit right here. I'm not leaving this bakery because obviously they don't want to come inside. I don't know why, but they didn't want to come inside the bakery. Um, Five minutes later, after the 15 minutes, the owner of the bakery comes up to me and or the guy who worked behind the counter. I don't know if he was the owner. I keep saying that. Came up to me and he handed me the phone and I looked at the phone. I thought he was telling me to like try again. But I looked at the phone and the red light was on, meaning that it was already a, a live line. Someone was on the phone. So I was like, hello? And and Thomas was like, hello, did you call me? You know? Oh, and I'm God. like, Thomas, it's me. It's uh, me. He door. goes, Charlie. What's <laughs> going on? Where are you calling from? I was like, Tom, don't, don't ask questions. My phone's not working. Listen, go downstairs. Like, where are you? He goes, I'm in the, I'm in the Riyadh, because we stayed in like this three story Riyadh. Oh. And I'm on the rooftop. Um, I'm on the rooftop hanging out. I said, Thomas, go downstairs right now and open up the door. And it's like, okay. And he hung up. Now, I, 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 As soon as I hung up, I don't. I wasn't confident in myself that I had relayed the severity of needing to open the door right fucking now. Right. So knowing Tom, he's like <laughs> yes. laying on the balcony. I'll
1: get to it. Yeah, yeah. he's like, oh, I'll go to the bathroom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I to hang
0: out, like, so Courtney's like about to run out the door, and I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Pull we're her on, back we're on in.
1: time here. we need
0: to wait like seven minutes here, so we waited. <laughs> It was the slowest five minutes of my life. And as soon as I felt, I was like, this is all right, he's down there. We ran and we ran to the thing, and the door wasn't open. <laughs> and so we started banging really loud. and these guys weren't like chasing after us, but and I kept turning around and they weren't in the alley, so I was banging, but they weren't there. And then literally, Right when Tom slowly started opening the door, I had to like push the door. They turned the corner. <laughs> oh no! And I'm like, no! And I pushed it. And I slammed it shut, and it was like a steel. So it was a riad yeah, had a steel door, mm-hmm. which went to a courtyard, and then a large, like a regular door. To right, and I was to like, these it. guys are not mm-hmm. coming in. And that was my whole Morocco story.
1: Ooh, that's so funny, dude. I can totally see Tom just like, yeah, you know, it's he's probably, you know, finishing up his food. I'm going to just take it easy. <laughs>
0: that's such a Tom thing. He's the man. That's great. And so like there's this um culture disconnect when you have to realize and and if I was more cultured I would have realized to not um that I should have realized to not drink basically in a in a country that doesn't drink. But I right. want to ask you a question. You know, in t- you're American. You live here too. Um, the media and the administration and and is very like anti-Chinese and anti-Russian right now, which is a shame because you and I have had the pleasure and the opportunities of working with a lot of Asian people, a lot of Chinese, you know, Chinese, Japanese, Malaysian, um, um, Korean. And we also work with a lot of Russians and I, I love doing business with Russians. They are some of the best hustlers I've ever met. But the current administration and the media is like portraying as these evil Russians and these evil Chinese. What's the, cur- the cultural disconnect that we have? And, and that cultural disconnect that we have in the crypto space has caused a lot of friction between the Chinese Bitcoin community and the Western Bitcoin community. But, you you know, you're considered basically like an adopted Chinese when you go over there. They love you. What are some of the cultural disconnects that we have here as as Americans or as Western Europeans? So it's interesting, right? If you think about – I feel like,
1: broad picture, it's just kind of been ingrained in us forever, right? When we are growing up, uh, you know, especially in like small town, middle of nowhere, USA uh, – you're taught America's the best, and uh, that's that's all that matters, right? So, I feel like there's a lot of uh, it's kind of shitty to say, but a lot of latent racism that's just kind of been ingrained into our culture. Number one, number two, um, I, I will say that the the weirdest experience I've had, like interpersonal, right, just like within myself, was the very first time I went to China. It was like 2012, 2013, something like that. I was working on one of the first uh, Litecoin A6 at that time. And it was not in like a big, somewhat westernized Chinese place like Shanghai or Shenzhen. It was in the middle of nowhere. And um, nobody could really speak uh, English except for the, the, the bosses of the company. And so we had translators and stuff. But after spending three days there... It was a really weird feeling to feel like even though those people couldn't speak to me and I couldn't speak to them because I didn't know Chinese, I felt a weird connection with them because of the work ethic, right? There's there's very few things I do in this world really well, but working hard I feel is one of them. And that's what I can say for that first trip there was – it's at the end of the day we're all just people trying to get by and and grind out cool projects right and and that i knew to be true with them and it was a really weird sense of bonding with people that i didn't know had zero in common with and that for me was like a huge eye-opening experience and i feel like a lot of people out the gate don't have that and it's real easy to have preconceived notions right so um, what's interesting now though, is the, the crypto community, uh, as, as a greater whole, not just Bitcoin in particular is becoming more self-aware about that. Um, I could speak about my experience in EOS a little bit where, um, I actually started a project to bring, to kind of bridge that gap. Was this EOS fish? Um, so that was part of it, but it's basically the, the company is a coalition of a few different companies, but it's, it's, it's called the link. And the link puts out a quarterly newsletter uh, specific to EOS, but it's more specific about bringing the two communities together. And its uh, I feel like it used to be a huge problem because of the nature of mining, right? Very adversarial as far as outward optics, right? If you're a miner and you're kind of like involved in the mining space, then really it's just like a bunch of buddies I mean, I've sent stuff to people when I didn't have enough capacity and I ordered too much gear and I'm just like, hey, can you host this and we'll split the profit? And they're like, yeah, sure, no problem. That's literally the the extent of the conversation and I would ship it and it's done. But from outside appearance, it seems like, oh, this is an arms race and because people can get, uh, what we say, homebound deals in China where you can just pay to get cheap electricity, that's an unfair advantage and the Chinese guys are taking over Bitcoin and all this stuff, just because the, the nature of the economies of scale are different there. China is a huge, geographically speaking, country and uh, ecology, right? So, there's mountains, there's plains. It's very similar to the states in that regard. So, the access to resources is very high. And so, of course, people want to go there. But from outside appearance, it seems like it's a co-opt attempt, Right. So I, I feel like it, it's super easy to draw those conclusions if you don't actually know what's going on. Um, so I think that's probably where the, the disconnect there is, to be honest.
0: Do you think that's something specific to the crypto space or is it something that the whole world has to deal with?
1: Man, I, that's a good question. I can tell you that, and and you know this too, it, it it never fails no matter where you go. You can always find somebody that you get along with that you have nothing in common with. Um, Thomas is a great example of that, right? For me anyway, sure. he's, he's very different from me, but we just get along. Um, and, and I feel like it, it's a big problem worldwide, especially for not our generation, but our parents' generation, right? Cause they grew up in the time of, <clears throat> especially in the States and even in China too, like a time of supreme nationalism, right? So when our parents are growing up. You had the rise of Mao and the the thoughts didn't change until um, Deng Xiaoping started taking over and opened China. So um, I feel like that's just so much a part of how they grew up, even until they were 30 or 40, right? Until what ages we are now, that it's just like hard to not feel a certain way. And I find that very true now is, uh, you know, a, a lot of my family now is Chinese and uh, it's I feel like it's the sentiment's changing but that's only because sorry to be so crass but the older people are dying out and the younger people don't really care right so I think that that's it's an evolving thing but the older people are the people who watch the news right and so they can see all this propagandist bull crap being sent to them and they're eating it up so um, I don't know the last time I turned on a TV and I'm sure you're the same way so I think the reach of traditional bullcrap media is slowly diminishing. Um, And people are even now pivoting away from Facebook and even Twitter. So um, I feel like it's getting better and progressing. Um, But the the good news is whether you like it or not,
0: the world is kind of just assimilating into one body, right? I really hope so though. But I feel like here at least it's the opposite. I mean, I turn on the radio every day and it's just – the Chinese are hacking us. The Russians are this. It's, and I'm well, saying to myself, that's all like
1: state level, like state against state stuff, right? Like for me personally, there's very little harm that could be done to me directly if a state level actor in China is hacking some US government stuff. I'm now to the point where, uh, you know, there's not much that people can do with that kind of stuff. And it's just, Espionage versus espionage, right? So I'm at this point a lot more self sovereign because of Bitcoin, and you know I'm at this point I'm damn near my own bank. Still have traditional banking because that's the reality of the situation. But if tomorrow the world just popped off, as long as the internet's
0: online, I'm good to go, and I don't care. So so if the if that's a good point, if the world pops off, and you have Russia, China, America war, which is what the media and the state levels want us to believe because if they control our thoughts, they control us. If that happens, God forbid, and I don't think it would. Um, my hope and what what lets me sleep at night is knowing that because we all talk to each other, we all work together, our cultures are so intertwined at this point. American soldiers are not going to want to fight Chinese soldiers. They're just going to say, "What? why would I do that? Like what I don't understand why am I killing people that I was just on holiday with, you know, in Thailand or whatever?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting point. Although I think the military specifically is a unique case. Um, when I was in college, I was an ROTC. So I'm not pretending that I know the full extent of this. But what I can tell you from what I've seen is that that's a whole nother level of like brainwashing, to be honest. I have a lot really? of buddies who were in the military and that um, they've told me a lot of crazy stories about. You know, when somebody tells you to kill somebody, you do it. And it's not even a second thought because of how they're trained. So that specifically, I don't think would be an issue because when bullets are whizzing past your head, you have no time to think about sentiment or emotion. You have to think of time to
0: think about, I'm going to live, I'm going to die. Right? But surely the whole concept, the people in the upper echelons of the military are going to say, wait, why are we actually fighting the yeah, Chinese? Yeah. Um. You know, that's, that's a,
1: uh, an interesting point for sure. I think that uh, there, there's a lot more existential problems to, <laughs> to be solved before we just go popping each other. But uh, that's just how humankind has been for literally centuries, you know, people just killing each other. That's
0: it. I'm so honored that Untold Stories is sponsored by eToro eToro is the smartest crypto trading platform and one of the largest in the world with over a trillion dollars in trading volume per year. What I really love about eToro is that the CEO has been around the Bitcoin space since 2012. So they really, really put their money where their mouths are. U.S. customers, myself included... We can trade the most popular crypto assets. In fact, almost all the ones that you want to trade with low but transparent fees. So you actually know what you're paying for everything. And that's really, really, really important. So if you're not ready to trade yet, you can practice building your portfolio with the eToro $100,000 virtual trading feature. So you can create this whole portfolio without trading With any real money to see how you'll do. And you can learn all the different ins and outs without using any real money yet. And then once you're comfortable, you can enter the market and start buying and selling crypto for real. Best of all, one of my favorite features is that you can connect with 11 million other eToro traders in the world, myself included. And we can talk trading, charts and all things crypto. So listen, head on over to eToro.com Links are in the show notes and build your crypto portfolio the smart way. I'd like to thank my sponsor of Untold Stories, Scott Offord. Scott is a Bitcoin mining consultant and provides managed miner hosting services in Texas. If you need to get at least 25 megawatts of miners online in the next three months, Scott wants to talk with you right now. Contact him on Telegram or Twitter at o f f o r d. S-C-O-T-T. He's offering an all-in rate of 6.5 cents per kilowatt an hour. Wow. That's like super cheap. That's like electricity cost in the Arctic where things are automatically cooled because it's so cold. So he's offering 6.5 cents per kilowatt an hour without any CapEx required. Or if you commit to $170,000 per megawatt up front, he can get you a rate of 5 cents per kilowatt. Am I reading that right? 5 cents per kilowatt? That's unbelievable. Scott can get your first 25 megawatt hashing within 16 weeks from the date of signing. All the infrastructure, power lines, substations, Water lines and buildings are fully owned by the hosting company. By the end of March 2020, they will already have 150 megawatts online in Texas. This is such a super cool ad to record because my listeners are learning about mining now. Like this is this is really interesting. I I didn't even know half this half this stuff before I met Scott and he started sponsoring the show. So make sure you check out Scott on Telegram and Twitter at O F F O R D. S-C-O-T-T. And Scott, thank you again for being my first ever Untold Story sponsor. How has how the Bitcoin mining space or the total, the crypto mining space changed in the past six years? Um, I have seen many changes, but I can speak about
1: two groups of changes effectively, I think. Um, the vibe and culture of mining has changed. When I first got into it, um, you know, it 2010- I was working on, like, this golf app where you could set your iPhone on a green and it would, like, track your club head and stuff with a buddy of mine in Houston named Anthony. And we went to lunch and he was like, hey, man, you got to check out this crazy stuff I found. It's like this weird peer-to-peer money system. I was like, what? What what are you talking about? And so, kind of went down the rabbit hole with them. At first, I didn't even really – like. Only within the past, I would say, three or four years have I gotten really into, like, the financial ethics and inclusionary results that can come from crypto. So, back then, I was just, like, super nerd mode, like, oh, that's cool. My computer can make this stuff, right? (laughs) So, I immediately ran home, and um, I thought it was really cool to find, basically, in my head, Easter eggs with a, a CPU, right? I thought that was really neat to be able to just manifest these things into existence from solving math problems um and that was the vibe for a long time houston hackerspace was super big had a lot of people doing crypto stuff and it was all kinds it was like super uh underground very cool because nobody knew if it was legal or not right because the constitution says you can't make your own money Um, so we were just all like getting together hacking on stuff just having a good time i think the point that changed is in my mind, I can remember very specifically, I was walking around the Houston Galleria uh, with my girlfriend at the time. Is that a shopping mall? Yeah, it's a big okay. mall. And I had BTC BTCE up on my phone. This was like, I don't know, 2011, 2012. Good old days. And um, I saw the price of Bitcoin go from like 30 bucks when I left the house to 100 bucks when I was walking around the mall and then back to like 50 or 60 bucks on BTCE. And I I just kept thinking to myself, God dang it, I wish I had more money and I wish I knew more rich people because if I could convince these rich dudes to just buy tons of it, they're going to get super rich and I'll get super rich and then we can do all this nerd stuff for real. And that was the pivotal point in my career where I thought this is more than just like a game. We can make cool stuff if we had enough ways to leverage the price volatility and then like the whole mindset of, of how I saw crypto change from that point. but So, I, I think the, the culture for mining has changed kind of around the pricing. Um, you know, when I got into it, when Jihan got into it, when, uh, you know, Dave got into it, everybody was broke as a joke. And uh, footnote here, I'm not in crypto to make money, but with more money, you can do more cool stuff. True. Um, and you can, you know, help more people with more, more resources. So let me caveat what I'm about to say with that. But when we got involved, everybody was broke. Nobody knew what was going on. And a lot of people didn't know how to take the sudden infusion of cash into their lives. So now
0: I am one of those people. Sure. I I take full responsibility. Um, and I, I, the reason I say it is because I have to remind myself. (laughs) Exactly. Um, the flip-flops I, do a good I job. I was that. one of those people. And I, <laughs> I, yeah, but, but I'm talking about in 2013.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And I crashed fucking hard.
1: Yeah, sure. But for you, right, I think even for you, it was way more of a kind of a meteoric rise because in order to mine, right, there's so much infrastructure, hardware, setup that's useless for anything else except for mining. And so the the ramp-up time to get to where we were was a lot less psychotic where you made a really great product and were just like, holy God, everybody in the world wants to buy Bitcoin from me, right? Yes. And so, your rocket ship ride was a lot more balls to the wall than I would say probably almost anybody's. Maybe Trade Hill is a bit different, but um, almost anybody, nobody can say that they went from zero to hero as quick as you did. So, I think… There are- zero
0: to hero <laughs> to zero to wherever I am now. <laughs> zero to hero to zero to sitting having up fun. In your sandals, <laughs> <laughs> not in Miami. <laughs> not in Miami. That's right. Um, yeah, it was funny when that Winklevoss ca- case came out, um, which I was I was very happy with the outcome of that. Mm-hmm. And um, and I'm not sure what I can say and <laughs> what I cannot say. Um, Brian's typing an email to you. Yeah, right he's now. like, stop talking. <laughs> Um, but uh, what I can say is that every time, you know, well, they had to pay my legal fees twice, which was great. Right. And then what I can say is that just on the eve of, of, um, of their depositions, which I was allowed to ask them anything I wanted to, <sighs> I was ready. I was literally hopping on a plane to go depose them because I was so excited. Uh huh. My lawyer called me up and he's like, It's over. I was like,
1: ah,
0: you were was happy like, but mad. <laughs> say- I was happy but like I was like, damn, I actually am so much money into this case now yeah. to prove my innocence because they had spent they spent millions of dollars in legal fees Jeez. and investigators looking for this imaginary five thousand Bitcoin. That's right. That just didn't exist. All it right. just never existed. It didn't and so they were looking for it. And I opened up my whole Financial World and oh, do you want to hear the craziest story? Yeah. So, another untold stories of Charlie <laughs> during a deposition. So they had they had done financial uh accounting of my whole life, like uh-huh. every dollar of everything, every Ooh. bank statement, every god accounts that I don't even remember They're having. Like every Bitcoin transaction, everything,
1: yes. yeah.
0: e- every address Cavity I've, I've ever had, people. and yeah. every Bitcoin address I've ever had and used. Was under the microscope. And I, I got that because in the legal case, you get the discovery also. Right. And so when they deposed me for eight hours, they asked me about specific, specific transactions. How can um, I mean, you remember that shit, man? I don't. And there were some worrisome ones. Like, for example, they'd send me – they'd send like a like a letter to me and the judge saying, aha, we found the 5,000 Bitcoin that was – that was Charlie. We found it. Here it is. And I'm like, fuck, like, what is this uh-huh. transaction? Like, I'm scared, He's you know? To think, like, oh, fuck, maybe there was so something I, I forgot about. Yeah, yeah, so I copied the address into my email, mm-hmm. and then I figured out what it was. It was actually me just helping some other guy named John Doe <laughs> set up his cold storage wallet. Uh-huh. And this John Doe is like a very, very well-known person in the space uh-huh. who then wrote an affidavit saying, "Yo, like, Winklevoss, back the fuck off. These are my Bitcoins. <laughs> These are not Charlie's. <laughs> man but stuff like that happened but uh, the side note was the great thing that happened was i had actually found out through because the way i the way i paid my taxes in 2017 was i just took like how much money ended up my bank account and i paid the highest rate i, I overpaid i feel like yeah. but it doesn't matter I'm, i want to sleep at night right yeah of course so i paid a high six figures in taxes uh-huh. and i had figured out because of their forensic accounting during the deposition they're like what is this transaction of you wiring money back to wiring money to someone of like a hundred grand? And I'm like, Oh, wait a minute. I actually paid taxes on that, <laughs> but I shouldn't have. So I was like, can I have a copy in yeah. the middle of the deposition? I'm like, can I have a copy of this, of this exhibit? Or are like, person. your lawyer already has a copy of this. So I was like, Hold on, we need to like pause the depot because I I need this. Like, don't someone write a note for me to like get this later? And right. I sent it to my accountant, and I was like, "Hey, we need to like do something about this." He's yeah. like, "Oh, okay, cool. Like, this is Winner. great for you." <laughs> so they helped you out. Yeah, they helped me out there. Funny. Oh, but yeah. That was just a whole funny, a whole funny situation. Um, how did you? How did you go from mining? And I guess I I could already know your answer that mining got too. Um, too many people are involved now, but then you jump to eSports. How, how did you make that transition? So actually it has nothing to do with mining, that transition. And um, what is eSports for those who don't know?
1: So eSports is the, it's not just video gaming, it's competitive video gaming at an extremely high level, usually for money. That's just eSports in general. Um, in order to make that change, there's kind of a series of events that led me to that. Um, I ran a mining conference called Hashers united in 2014 2015 something like that and it was during this time um when crypto went from like a thousand bucks to 180 bucks right when bitcoin went that though and i really started to reevaluate like maybe i'm too heavy on the crypto side and need to start figuring out other stuff just in case this isn't a thing anymore right um I bought a drone company and I really got an appetite for like disruptive stuff. And I was like, all right, cool. And then a few years later, still mining. Um, it's going okay. And by this time I gotten really deep into mining, had all the new stuff was making custom gear with people, um, was running really specialized setups. Um, and every, when you get really good at mining, it's kind of a set it and forget it process. It takes a long time to get there though, on years. But once I had finally got there, it was um, 2016, I guess, <clears throat> late 2015. Um, I had basically gotten my ass kicked by the crypto industry because I'd worked for a, a company for like five months that it was Cripsy, the exchange where the CEO stole all the money. And instead of handling it properly and just coming out and and I quit well before then anyway, right? But the internet is the internet and people just lost their fucking minds. I remember that. Oh my God. And so, um, you know, instead of basically saying like, yo, I quit before all this went down, never had any access to anything. All the other employees got fucked too. And our own personal funds were seized too. Like, I mean, here's bulletproof evidence. Nobody did anything, right? Instead of doing that, I just kind of was like, fuck these clowns. And I just was like, let's figure out something else to do. It was right around that time that uh, I started a project called Bitcoin Classic with Gavin and Jonathan Toomham and um, a few other people. To try tell me to about that. that. Jesus Christ. I learned a lot. I'll tell you that. Um, Bitcoin Bitcoin Classic Classic. was one of the first... That's right. It was the first attempt at a soft fork and convincing everybody to increase the block size limit from one megabyte to two megabytes. Um, And it gained a lot of support. A lot of support. Um, And uh, it was interesting because around that time, the way we were showing support was people... If they were a miner, you could sign a Coinbase transaction with a certain set of bits Um, But for the big industry players like Coinbase and OKX and all these guys, they were just sending me an email like, hey, man, we're down to support with the caveat of you showing us that you didn't have anything to do with the Cripsy bullshit. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Privately, I'm happy to do that, right? So, like, I sent Brian a bunch of stuff from Coinbase, um, a bunch of other people just to be like, here's when I quit. Here's the DKIM signed email. Like, there you go, right? Um, But the it was a real interesting time in crypto because it was the first time I think that anybody really challenged the core status quo. Um, And it was a lot of work, a lot of work. And that resulted ultimately in what became Bitcoin Cash. Um, I don't think Bitcoin Cash would have been successful. And I think Roger probably agrees with this too. If it wouldn't have been able to even launch if we hadn't done classic first. Now, I'm not saying that I'm like a, oh, Bitcoin sucks and Bitcoin cash is awesome or the other way around. I see merit in most cryptos. Um, but I learned how toxic the community can be and how ruthless and how, just, how much bullshit you have to deal with with these people from time to time for stuff that you didn't even do wrong, right? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know, man. I still go back and forth in my head sometimes like, It can be great because it's so fucking censorship resistant, right? Like I, I wasn't a nobody trying to make a project. Um, I had enough street cred to garner the, I even had like huge companies, BitPay, Coinbase, OKX, everybody was down to run Bitcoin classic, everybody. Right. But Vlad wasn't going to put it into code base. None of the core developers were going to put it into the code base. Therefore it's not going to get done. And that is both, in my opinion, it's a double-edged sword, right? When you get a small quorum of people to agree that they're going to build Layer 2 solutions, it's not much you can do to stop them because they're stuck in an echo chamber of just yes men. I can tell you now, um, I've reconciled with a lot of them. Eric Lombroso, God, me and him used to fight so much about this shit. Um, but at the most recent roundtable, he and I really patched things up and it's all good. And most people I'm I'm good with now, but I can tell you that The community is super ruthless at times um, and that's a good and a bad thing. So basically, after about six months of doing this classic stuff, I was just like, dude, I'm out. Fuck this. This is why I started mining. There's no community. There's no people. I don't have to work with anybody. There's no customers. It's great. So I just went back to doing the mining stuff and then I kind of got bored, moved out of Houston and thought, all right, what's the next thing? And esports was kind of, in my radar and I thought okay nobody's watching TV anymore the super bowls had consecutive years that have downed viewership which you know the super bowl used to be considered the the bastion of traditional television where it's never going to fail kind of thing and um I saw this so esports was big when I was in high school right 2005 2006 and then the bottom fell out of it but it started to make a comeback you know Amazon acquired Twitch uh for a crazy valuation and i love games always been a gamer i game every day even today i just
0: got the new quest
1: you got the oh me too Oculus it's quest. it's a game changer dude a serious game changer uh and i, I kind of s- just sat there and i was like all right let's just try this esports stuff there's a lot of interesting parallels between esports and crypto the communities similar um i would say tech prowess wise right um and games really transcend almost everything so i run a a fairly large community now on a platform called discord and there's over fifty thousand people in this specific discord server and i've sat in on a ton of different conversations and i've heard crazy stuff like a guy who's 40 years old who lives in england is trading with this 16 year old kid who lives in india some knife for a game that they both like they have zero in common absolutely zero in common they almost don't speak the same language but what matters is they both like the same game and that's it that's all that matters and that's what brings people together and so that kind of like seemingly trivial stuff is actually super transcendental and it transcends all the other bullshit and that's really in my opinion a super powerful thing and those ideals really echo crypto because although people can be super toxic and super shitty The reality is people are only that way because they're so passionate about it,
0: you know? And because we're a bunch of socially awkward people. (laughs) Yeah, we're just a bunch of weirdos, man. We don't really know how to, you know, we're not diplomats. or statesmen. We don't know how to, like, convey our message. And I feel like we're all guilty of the same thing. Oh, yeah. Do you think we were better off with the Skype groups and the smaller community and everything? Or are we better off now? Bitcoin better off? Like, what was the the goal of of the whole space? So...
1: I don't think you can reach any kind of meaningful scale or adoption with just keeping it as a homeboy network, right? Um, however, you can keep your brain intact. So I will tell you that if we would have kept it super private and close to the chest, um, we would not have reached the goal of giving others financial sovereignty. But we also wouldn't have gone through the times where I want to jump off a bridge because I feel like nobody likes me in the world and everybody's just a terrible person. Right, so it's kind of have to sacrifice some of that so you can hit the end goal, and I think it's worth it. There were two years in my life that were the hardest ever, right after all the Cripsy stuff popped off.
0: Lessons learned. Oh my God, man! I tell you. Well, that's what I want to ask you. I mean, you here, you have Cripsy, and and you were part of something great, and I traded there, and then you left, and then shit hit the fan, and the the CEO ran away with with everyone's money, is living somewhere, where no one knows where he is. And then, you know, you were involved in in the early days of mining, which was, which was awesome. And then mining got kind of crazy and toxic and whatever happened, happened. And then you did Bitcoin Classic, which um, your intentions were good, you know, so the common denominator and Bitcoin Classic was the precursor to the idea of scaling Bitcoin. And until you, until you were involved in Bitcoin Classic, no one talked about scaling Bitcoin. It wasn't even a conversation. Um, no one, people were so resistant to talking about it. So if anything, what you did was at least start a conversation about the need for scaling Bitcoin. Right. And so that was really important. It seems like the common denominator with you is that your intentions are very good. Um, the execution is often shit. (laughs) Well, it's not your execution. It's you know, good intentions are not transferable. That's right. You know, as they say, that's why they say like, you don't want to set a precedent for something because you never know who's going to be involved down the line. But your intentions were good, and you were you. They're all good ideas, and eventually, good things came out of them. But when you kind of step back, really, like stupid shit went on. And so, I guess my my, my point is that you got to like stick around in some you of this suck stuff. It up and stop being such a yeah. punk. <laughs> but no one wants to because no one likes being attacked.
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. There was a guy really early in the development cycle of Bitcoin. I came across him in um, late 2010, I think, and his handle was Bear. Bear was a super talented dev. Like, this guy was a fucking ninja, man. And he got into it one day on IRC, I think even with Greg. And Bear just stopped devving on Bitcoin, you know? So there's a certain aspect of mental fortitude that you have to bring to open source projects, I feel. And, and the way, the reason I say that is you look at Linus, the guy who runs Linux, right? Linus Torvalds, that guy's an animal, dude. He doesn't give a shit about what you think about him. I've literally seen him walk up to uh, the CEO of AMD and give her a middle finger because they wanted some kind of custom like firmware for some kind of Linux box, and he and they wanted it to close sourced, and he, he literally told Sue, "Go fuck yourself." And I was like, no, "This guy, this guy was built for open source, you know." Sure, Jeff Garzik's a great example of that too. You know, he he made his first commit to the Linux kernel I think when he was like fourteen or fifteen. Jeff's Jeff's got bulletproof skin too, man. He doesn't give a damn what anybody says about him because he knows that the project's that important, and that's just like I guess something you get over time because Bitcoin is the very first large-scale open-source project I've ever had any kind of interaction with. And if you look back at, like, early internet pioneers and people who started serious open-source projects, Tim Berners-Lee, all these guys don't give a shit what you say about them. And they just crack on with the project. So I think as time goes on, more people will develop that resilience and it will just be better for the project. So I don't think anybody can say, like, Jeff Garzik's contributions to the Linux kernel were useless. That's just not true. The reason you can connect to the fucking internet with Linux is because of Jeff, right?
0: But you know that Linus gave him a hard time because he was so young. So, but a lot of a lot of people um, in the space now are like putting all these early devs down. Like you know, the the problem is when you're seen as a god, and I feel like this is some of the some of the reasons that Satoshi went away. Is that the higher you rise, the harder you fall? So guys, you know, Gavin, if Gavin was seen as like Satoshi too, right. Yeah. You know, in the early days, we all saw Gavin as just literally like Gavin was like the reincarnation of Satoshi. Gavin was the living <laughs> mm-hmm. Satoshi, you know, cause Satoshi felt he handed off. Satoshi, Gavin was like Moses, you know, like God was God and, or, you know, Gavin was Jesus or whatever religion you follow or Mohammed sure. or whatever. Um, and so th- there was that. And then, Gavin was on such a high of a pedestal and was seen as like so much pressure, though, so much pressure. God. And he was so good for the space. He just did amazing, amazing things. But now because of one little mistake he made by basically being like wanting to believe Satoshi was real so badly that he believed Craig Wright. That was what his downfall was. And he's such a a petty thing, right? It was such a petty thing. And he's apologized it to, you know, he's apologized for and he's admitted his mistake. And now when I email him to even come on this show, he's like, I don't do press anymore. I'm like, (laughs) Gavin, I will not ask you about anything of that. I just literally want to talk about, I want to bullshit about the early days. It's all I want to do. I want to talk about that one time with me and you in Austria. I want to have fun. And he's like, I won't do it. And I'm like, that sucks because you are such an integral part of the early Bitcoin days. And I'm not trying to be in a, apologetic for him or for not for him but it's just a shame it's just a shame that and 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 that's why i'm afraid of even going out there and running a company again or doing anything where i'd be seen as like on top again because i was there and i fell really fucking hard and i don't I, want to I do agree it again with that you know i i think i've always maintained that a
1: big problem in the early days of crypto like you remember when these companies were getting like psychotic valuations from these vc firms for like useless fucking products right with no business model and people they think the ICO, useless products people think the ico phase was psycho y'all should have been around in 2013 when companies were getting like stupid valuations for literally the dumbest ideas the The biggest problem, and I still maintain one of the biggest things that has hurt the development of Bitcoin specifically is the fact that CTOs were acting like CEOs, right? So you have all, and and I include myself in this, right? Um, You have all these like dysfunctional people who don't know how to communicate face-to-face and are like weird introverted people trying to run companies and not fully understanding the full ins and outs of like what it takes to run a company and what it takes to like interact with the community and all this kind of stuff, right? I still think that that's one of the biggest issues that has ever plagued Bitcoin because if you think about it, all the systemic problems we've had come from there. You know, people bitching online. Look at the people. Look at the people. You'll never see, for instance, a great parallel. Take uh, Stephen Pear, CEO of BitPay. Compare him to... I don't know. And, and I'll, I'll say Peter Todd. Peter Todd's never tried to run a, a big company, but the way Steven interacts with people is very different than the way Peter interacts with people. Peter runs his own stuff. He runs his own company. He does his own development. But Peter would never try to run a BitPay, right? Mostly probably because it's against his ideals. But yeah the, the, the reality of the situation is there's a different skill set for spearheading
0: a project. Than there is for developing a project, and I okay. Think I'm gonna that's I'm awesome. gonna expand what you just said. I'm gonna say this: there's a different skill set to spearheading or running a company than from spearheading and running and growing an industry.
1: Yes, it takes a certain amount of oh, I don't know, knowing how to talk to people, and I'm really bad at this too. That's why I have business partners who tell me like, "Yo, you're fucking dumb. Like, <laughs> learn how to talk to people, right? It's it's just an evolving process. Well, and it's I not think easy to
0: do at all." Especially online, right? In text. so if- People make fun of me. I type so fast. I'm like a oh, yeah. fast typer. Mm-hmm. But I, I, and I rely on autocorrect. Like I literally, when I type, my autocorrect is so good. It knows what I'm going to say before <laughs> I even say it. Like I'll just type the letter like F and it knows I want to say the. You know, it just knows <laughs> because I type so quickly because I need to get these thoughts out. But the problem is, is that I, I get tons of spelling mistakes. I get criticized for it. Okay, in emails and professional settings, I will make sure. But when I'm in your Telegram room and I'm, you know, going at it, like having, like getting a point across that's like going out of my head faster than I could type, I'm not going to worry about spelling the right things, spelling the right way. Because your brain works very similar to my brain, where our brains do things faster than we can actually keep up with. That's right. Mm Mm-hmm god my um, wife hates it <laughs> i know my wife hates it too because i'm very forgetful like for example um someone will text me and say hey i want to hang out with you and your wife next weekend i'm like all right work i put it in my calendar it's in my calendar june 14th but this is what we're doing great it's in my calendar then i forget to tell my wife about it and then like the guy will bring it up you know yesterday he's like oh i'm excited for us to hang out next week and i'll be like oh my wife's like oh charlie didn't tell me about it i was like i f- forgot like i i put it in my calendar so i would remember but i failed to remind you and tell you and i'm really bad at that yeah man that's why we have people around us who are better yeah. than us at almost everything marshall when when am i gonna see you next when what's your next travel plans yeah
1: man i'm thinking about uh i might skip over shanghai but um there's uh i think there's a few things this summer right bitcoin miami in january yeah,
0: that, but honestly, it's probably going to be that because <laughs> you don't go anywhere. I and need I to travel somewhere up. because Florida is like too hot here. For you get to live out there, man. It's really bad. Like um, my probation ends September 15th, and at that point, Not I'm going to – I'm all out of control, baby. Like, yeah, I'm going to go to Europe, and I just want to be able to travel again. So for the next like two and a half, three months, I got to figure out – I may go to Maine for like a month or two. All right, when you come to Maine, you got to lay over in Boston. I get will. Hit me up. Well, I'll fly. I'll fly direct Sarasota to Boston, and yeah. then I'll I'll get I'll get a car. Yeah, we live real close to the airport too. So. Perfect. All yeah. right, man. Thank you
1: so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Great work. I really like what you're doing too. This is, uh, I think, a lot of people like to hear these kind of things. And awesome. uh, I mean, we know everybody, right? So keep up. Yeah, the good that's
0: work. that's the that's the point. Awesome, <laughs> uh, Marshall. Last thing: How can people follow you? What's your Twitter? My Twitter is at OGBTC. That's like the best Twitter account, (laughs) OGBTC. All right, OGBTC, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'll talk to you later. Thanks, buddy. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Untold Stories are released every Tuesday and Thursday at 7 a.m. EST on untoldstories.com, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Untold Stories is produced by Jason Yanowitz, Michael E. Polito, Reid Hannaford, and Riley Silbert of BlockWorks Group. Our account executives are Gina Felice and Julie Muroff. Our content is written by Kathy Zolo, Ronnie Tishner, and Scott Offer. Special thanks to Wayne Dallaire from Jump Dog Audio Productions, and of course, I'm your host, Charlie Schrem. You can follow me on Twitter, at Charlie to continue the conversation Send me some messages, feedback, or anything you want to say. And remember, please give some love to my sponsors, and I'll see you next week. Remember, strength in numbers, and information is power.